You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Burling, and today I'm joined by Aaron Purdy from Health Initiative for Men. Aaron, thanks Hi. for joining. Can thank you introduce you. yourself, please? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm Aaron. Uh, I use he, him, his. I'm an uninvited inhabitant on unceded ancestral Coast Salish territories, uh, ancestral homes of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people, sometimes known as Vancouver. Wonderful. And I am the executive director at an organization called HIM, Health Initiative for Men. Well, thank you so much again for coming in. Thank and you. And looking forward to this discussion. HIM is an organization that I've worked closely with through Vancouver Pride, through Community, who we've had on the podcast previously. I know you've had some involvement with Community as well. And uh, to kind of get the ball rolling, can you tell our audience what Health Initiative for Men is, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So HIM is an organization, we work together with our communities. So we work with gay bi, the communities of gay, bi, queer men and gender diverse people to build healthier lives together. So where we started was in HIV prevention. So we started from a place of understanding that in the early 2000s, HIV rates had kind of gone down for a time. And HIM was the organization that stepped in when a HIV rates stopped going down and started increasing again. And what was happening was that people who were, of course, not positive were becoming HIV positive. And there was a question being put out by many people like me, uh, queer men, asking the question, maybe we need something that stands alone. Maybe we need something distinct. So where we started was being kind of men, queer men's focus, gay men's focus, actually is where we started, if I'm being honest, mm -hmm. um, formed by gay men to focus on gay men's health. We have since evolved. We've been around for 16 years now. So we've evolved in, in as many ways as we can, and we continue to evolve. But essentially, we do sexual, physical, social, and mental health programming, all to uh, contribute to healthier lives and, and building health and well-being amongst our communities. Right. And I think when a lot of people hear about HIV, they're thinking about the crisis in the 80s, right? Your organization wasn't formed in the 80s. It was formed, like you said, for that resurgence. Is, it, is that right? That's right. Yeah. And, and, and our parents are the organizations that were formed in the 80s, oh. right? So we came from aid service organizations. Actually, him started as a program of AIDS Vancouver, believe it or not. Okay. And it was called Gay Way. It was this cute little storefront. And it had um, condoms. You could come in and talk to other gay guys about like what your options were. We started early advocacy for PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, our parents absolutely are, and our ancestors are aid service organizations that still exist today. Um, but we do, yes, stand apart. And I think a lot of people do think about the 80s, the early 90s, the mid 90s as the time of the crisis of the ep the core of the crisis of the epidemic, but we don't think about it as over still to this day because there are still people facing similar injustices to that which was happening in the 80s and 90s. So, right. but yes, you're absolutely right. And can you talk a little bit about what that resurgence looked like and the effects that people are still experiencing? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's there's obviously two equations. There's two factors with um, with this is that there are people in our communities living with HIV right now. Mm -hmm. That's That's the fact of the matter, is it? When the highly effective antiretroviral therapy drugs were released, uh, we saw a steep decline in deaths. We saw a change occurring with um, people living with HIV, even if they had been newly diagnosed and might be previously at risk of dying. 
uh, those people survived. And consequently, after that, new people who became HIV positive were able to get on medications that were life-saving. So that community still thrives and lives today, whether they're becoming newly positive and can take medications to help them suppress their viral load, or they're long-term survivors of HIV and they're part of our communities and they were at the table when him was formed. The resurgence, or what I would call kind of the the changes, and there's there's lots of different papers that talk about why this might have been, but in the early 2000s, kind of around 2004, 2005, specifically in Vancouver, it was, it was observed that there was this increase because it had decreased to approximate rates of one in five. Okay. One in five gay men were either HIV positive, ostensibly HIV positive, or had very high risk. Right. For That's a huge number. It's a big number, and it shocks people. Like it shocks, even when I started at him, it shocked a lot of gay men that I would be talking about that it was that high, which introduces the actual second layer of the problem is stigma. Right. And so what we think at him, the primary factor that drove that, uh, that kind of stoppage of new infections and this increase in new infections was fear about getting tested. Stigma around involving yourself with HIV prevention, because I think that sometimes people thought, well, if I involve myself with HIV prevention, people will think I'm living with HIV and I don't want that stigma associated with myself. And I suppose there was also that fear of people thinking that you were gay for a while. Well, there's that too. Absolutely. There's that is kind of the elephant in the room that still impacts us today. Mm -hmm. Both of them do. All of them do. All of those factors, whether it's the members of our community who still struggle getting the health care that they need when they're living with HIV, or it's the community members who, you know, are afraid of, of getting HIV and are afraid of telling people that they're gay. All of that stuff are what we call contributing factors to, to the person's risk generally, right? Like to just being like not as healthy as they might want to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, when someone would get an AIDS diagnosis in the 80s, it was essentially a death sentence, right? So yeah. nowadays, what does that look like? People get a diagnosis and they want to seek treatment. Are there, you know, really good odds of, of living a long and healthy life at that point? Yes. At this point, where the medications are at, if people can be given medications that work for them, if they can be provided those medications with low to no barriers, and if they can be provided with the supports that they need. And in British Columbia and Vancouver, we're very, very fortunate in, in this realm. And I can talk more about that in a moment. But yeah, at this point, the, the research all says that the life expectancy for a person living with HIV is the same as a person not living with HIV. That's great. So they have like these doctors and researchers and advocates and community leaders who've pushed forward this. They've, they've literally saved lives mm-hmm. and changed lives because now people may may live their entire lives they may be diagnosed with hiv and they may never get aids they may never get an infection because their viral load has been sufficiently suppressed for the entire duration of their infection and you were saying that we're pretty fortunate in british columbia is that because we now have access to prep here um that's a part of it but actually i would say that first we have to we have to thank the people who were caring for people who had hiv first Because we wouldn't have PrEP without HIV medication. Because actually, PrEP is just HIV medication. Right. We're all taking HIV medication is the way we talk about it. You know, whether you have HIV or you don't, it's the same medication for a lot of us. So it's kind of the, it's a dual conversation. But yeah, Vancouver was interesting because of 
organizations like Providence Health and, and St. Paul's Hospital and the, what eventually became the BC Center for Excellence in HIV Care with doctors at the helm, like I'm sure you might have heard of Dr. Julio Montaner, who's like um, kind of prolific in this realm. And he was the, a leader in this segment of the sector who did a lot of amazing work in the 80s. A lot and the 90s and a lot of uh, community leaders take took a huge part in that too i mean like dr montana couldn't really do anything if there weren't people knocking on the door so vancouver was avant-garde vancouver was willing to try things that other cities were too afraid to do i'm not i'm not a doctor so i can't name exactly those things but there was a willingness to a let community be involved and b to actively fight the stigma associated with hiv to allow them to actually meaningfully address it in a medical way. Many advancements in HIV care happened in Vancouver. So Vancouver was a landscape that was in a way prepared for the paradigm of HIV care and prevention. So in a way, we're set up for success because of the history that the organization has had and the long-term survivors who came before us and the community leaders who came before us. PrEP is a part of it, is part of the new prevention landscape, but really has only been available for everyone since 2016. Right. It's pretty recent. It's pretty recent. In terms of a provincially available program, people have found lots of ways to get HIV medications throughout history, and that included several years before PrEP was available uh, for everyone. Uh, people were getting it from uh, overseas. People were ordering it from well, so other locations. available, but just not locally. Yes. And it was available, but it wasn't covered. Okay. And it wasn't that accessible. It was quite expensive when it okay. when it was first um, kind of talked about. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad that people have those resources now. And we've talked a little bit about HIV. What other services does him offer? One of our flagship, or I know that one of our flagship programs is our clinic. Mm -hmm. So in 2009, we opened a very, very small gay men's focused clinic on Davie Street above the Fountainhead Pub. It was a nondescript location. It doesn't have a big storefront. It doesn't have big signs out front. So it allows for people who are not so-called not out of the closet or out of the so-called closet um, to come and feel okay because it just looks like an office building. So we started there and that has been probably our flagship program. And a lot of the people who know about us know about us for the clinic. They think about us as the people who have the clinic and it's grown. It's, it's now like 2,500 or so square feet. Wow. So it's massive now, but... It started at 450 square feet, mm -hmm. very small, but we became a going concern because we created a clinical environment that was customized to our communities. Mm -hmm. So what happened was we customized it, we coded it, we, we put out ads, we put out, we did outreach, um, we wore tank tops, we didn't wear shirts when we were doing outreach, we engaged with our communities where they were at. And what happened was we created safety in that program. So that would, I'd say, honestly, would be like the program that most people know us for. And what does that clinic look like yeah. now? Well, it's so it's messy. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, now we have over seven clinic rooms where people can go in and have a private conversation with a nurse. Basically, the way that it works is it's nurse run. Mm -hmm. So there are there are doctors in the space, but uh, to a much much lower extent than nurses. Nurses have always been the people doing the frontline HIV care and prevention work. They are the unsung heroes of the HIV epidemic. And so we have always partnered with nurses. And so the way that it works is that HIM is a nonprofit organization and we host, promote, and support existing services elsewhere. So 
the nurses that are in the hem clinics are actually, when we started, they were BC CDC nurses, BC Centers for Disease Control nurses, okay. and now they're Vancouver Coastal Health nurses. Similarly, in our Fraser Health Clinic, which is reopening tomorrow oh. in Surrey, very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, so February well, it'll 1st. it'll be open already. It'll be open already when this airs, so everyone can check out our website, checkemout.ca, and look at where we have clinics. The clinic, similarly in Fraser region, has Fraser Health nurses. In the interior, our pop-up testing nights have interior health nurses. We are not ourselves nurses and doctors. So we create an environment that's queer. So we have queer art on the wall. Right now we have a gallery by an artist named Jason Young. He's put up the abstract paintings of faces and bodies of men and folks and women uh, to just show kind of it, it looks very queer when you walk in the door. Like it looks gay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like there's like bodies on stuff. There's rainbows. There's trans flags. There's rules on the wall that said that, that say like you're not allowed to be racist discriminatory or you will be asked to leave um which we have to do to maintain safety for everyone it's a nice space people can either book appointments or come for drop-ins people have a long history of relationships with the clinic so they'll know their favorite nurse and they'll want to see that person um so there's a bit of a community up there it's also just it's honestly it's a really busy clinic as well so to be honest, what it looks like is a really fucking busy clinic. <laughs> it looks like a really busy clinic because we have made ourselves essential right. in the West End and in the community. And I know that you have a counseling background. Does yes. him also offer counseling services? We do. Yes, we do. So within the health center on Davie Street specifically, we co-locate counseling because there was actually a study that came out that was done in our spaces a few years ago by Travis Solway. And he found that, uh, he and his research colleagues found that when you co-locate sexual and mental health services for queer people specifically, they have a higher likelihood of engaging in both services. Oh, so just because of the barrier of having to book two yeah. separate appointments. And, and like when I'm in a sexual health space, I can kind of guarantee that no one's going to be judgy about my mental health. Right. Okay. So there's this connection that we made. So yes, we do have counseling, which kind of intros into like our general theoretical framework that we work within. So we work under an assumption that HIV is not just a singular disease that's just a virus that works in isolation. We believe that it is what we call a syndemic, which is a, a term uh, coined by a researcher named Meryl Singer. And it is a term that essentially means the existence of co-occurring epidemics and overlapping and mutually reinforcing epidemics. So something like, for example, um, like uh, mental illness, poverty, substance use, uh, violence, uh, oppression, marginalization, gender change, sex work, all sorts of different things that can be not exactly con considered disease epidemics. They are all contributing factors to the paradigm of HIV prevention. So what we realized this was that we actually can't just have clinics to prevent HIV. Mm -hmm. We actually have to meet everyone where they're at. So we had to realize that we had to arrange an array of programs that attracted people at different points in their, in their timeline. We have the testing programs, vaccinations, treatments, all that, all the clinical services you can imagine that is happening. It happens at the same time as counseling. In the clinic rooms, we also advertise for our groups, workshops. Uh, we have health promotion campaigns. We do outreach in the bars. We are seen to have our big condom boxes in the queer bars in Vancouver and Fraser and in the interior. We do, uh, we do, we show up at, at gay bars and drag shows and talk about our, our things that we're working on promoting. 
We have a sex work outreach program that engages with sex workers led by a peer. We have substance use programs as well. The metaphor that I use for people is a phenomenon of if you're picking apples from a tree, why just climb up the ladder with one bucket? Why not put a bunch of buckets underneath the tree and catch more? Why not having mo have more people picking the apples so that less fall down the hill? A lot of people think of us just like I said earlier, they think about us just for testing. So they come in, they're like, that's where I got my testing done. We're good. Thanks for the prep. See you later. Right. That's great for a lot of folks. For a lot of other folks, they, wouldn't, they don't need testing. Maybe they're not having sex, but they're lonely. And that's a part of contributing to this epidemic. We have to intervene on all of those components. So we have programs that also deal with loneliness. Uh, anxiety, anxiety around sexual health issues is, is, a, is a specific type of group that we have because that comes up. We have trans-specific mental health groups. Like I said, we have, we have a cha-cha group happening right now where like guys can come together and like learn how to dance with guys and like break isolation. So we ask them questions whenever we do the group. And we're like, do you feel like more included in your community? And they're like, yeah, thank you. And we're like, yay, because that is HIV prevention. Right. Mental health work social health work, physical health, getting together with your friends and family, cultural work, coming together to our indigenous crafting circle. That is medicine. That is HIV prevention. Mm -hmm. It's not just condoms and prep. It's not just condoms and prep. It is a litany of things for a bunch of different people. I've met people who hadn't had sex before, who came to our group so, so socially anxious, so nervous, wallflowers, mm -hmm. never been to this kind of thing. Never had sex with a man before. A guy hadn't had sex with a guy. Been straight for most of his life. Came out in his, his his older age. Was a wallflower. Gradually started getting involved. Became more more sexually confident. Started having sex and immediately knew where to go for testing. Because he had a relationship with us already. And he knew what was safe. So for him, he got to shortcut a lot of the stuff that a lot of younger gay men might might have had to deal with in when they started having sex and this person got to avoid that because he knew who to go to mm -hmm. and he knew us personally because at that point he was already a volunteer right and so it was how do you bridge that gap like you talk about youth maybe not knowing where to go right away are you trying to reach out to schools and and have that information provided at that point in time or is that a tricky situation because of the content you know what uh of course we need to reference the ways that negative and oppressive forces are fighting against soji but um we have had lots of opportunity to work with our partners organizations like options for sexual health youth co uh, organizations that do the school-based outreach to be honest we've been mostly focused on adults we've right. been mostly focused on 19 plus so we're encountering people who may have had sexual health information in high school may have not as you know vancouver is a place where lots of people move from different places mm -hmm. so we have never actually gotten into the early intervention sphere what we've done instead is make our website have as much information as possible and we know that young people access our website but we trust our partners in other organizations to do the early intervention in schools and they are smart cookies and they know about prep and they they keep in touch with us and they keep engaging um we teach courses at Quantlin to teachers and nurses so that they kind of feel confident in our subject matter yeah it is tricky though because you always i always hear about the parents who object the parents who you know shame the kids for learning about certain things like i do hear about those things but in all honesty 
at him, we have all fo- we have often focused on adults because we're encountering a group of adults who, like I say, may not have had any sexual health education. Right. Maybe they even got it, but they disconnected or disassociated through it because it was super heteronormative. So we find that it's almost like we've got our plate full with the people who are coming from different countries, coming from oppressive homes, coming from Christian communities in the north, mm-hmm. um, coming from small isolated spaces uh, across the country. Early intervention is so essential. And we see that uh, for, for our communities, we see that early intervention period of being quite wide. We think about it between the age of 14 and 30 is the space where we want to focus on targeting, on, on getting people to have the information that they need and have the resources that they need. And and that's because that demographic is typically the most sexually active? Yeah, I mean, there's there's research that says that it's like, yeah, between like 25 and 35 tends to be like where there's like a spike in sexual activity. Mm-hmm. But fascinatingly, amongst gay men, that, that it is quite different than among straight men there's some there's some life course research that shows that gay men are are just stay sexually active longer and view it as part of their human and cultural experience mm-hmm. that's the that's a long-winded answer to the early intervention question right and you mentioned that him sort of evolved out of a need to help gay men specifically and you've also mentioned that there's trans flags on the wall that you include other groups of people now. So can you explain what that progression looked like and who you're serving at the moment? Absolutely. When we started, the founders of the organization, like I say, were focused on on gay men. And that was there was a there's a lot of gay men. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of gay men. And they were amongst the people who were more likely or, or in many cases like more likely to get HIV. So that is where it started. Immediately though, uh, trans men, trans gay men were, were involved right from the get-go. We have people who are influencers and powerful um, knowledge holders in the medical system who started volunteering at him. Right. And they're trans guys and they've become experts. I'll, I'll say this as the new executive director. I love that we have a fun name that's a pronoun. And I hate that we have an organization that's named a pronoun. Because what happened was the minute we created safety in our clinic... Everyone wanted to come. Right. Trans women started wanting to be in the space. Cis women started wanting to be in the space. Queer cis women started wanting to be in the space. They wanted to get their testing there, and we didn't turn anyone away. So actually, from day one, we worked really hard to not turn anyone away. Was our outward focus on gay men and, you know, people who look like me? Yes. But now we've just evolved based on how the culture around us has evolved. So... In 2017, we worked with TransFocus Consulting and did a large gender audit. And we just asked our community questions. And we just asked them, like, do you know that this is for you? And a lot of people said no. A lot of trans folks said no. We actually didn't know that was for me. Mm -hmm. Even the trans guys were, like, reporting, like, oh, I didn't know that was for me. That's great. I'll go now. But I didn't know it was for me. Right. So we've been intentional over the last number of years of on all of our materials, describing who we're for, describing um, who should come, being ready to have conversations with anyone who comes in the door to say, like, is this a fit for you or is this a, or this not a fit for you? Um, we've been working on making sure all of our counselors can do uh, hormone readiness assessment. Oh, so awesome. we're, we're prepared for that kind of thing. Our counseling program, our clinic programs, our PNP programs all include trans women. for So they're all genders. Our conversion therapy and recovery programs is also all genders. Our volunteering program is all genders. And... 
it's always a challenge to continue to do that when your organization's name has a pronoun in it. Right. The way I talk about it to my staff is, if people feel like they're involved with us, then they're involved with us. Mm -hmm. If people feel that we have something that we can offer them, then they're welcome. The challenge, of course, is when, as one of my board directors has pointed out, we have a wonderful board of directors at him that are non-binary, uh, non-binary folks, trans women, two-spirit people, um, as well as cis guys. And one of them, you know, pointed out to me and they're like, you know, it's great y'all include trans women, but, and what a dysphoric experience that must be. To go to hell. To, to have to go to him when you're a trans woman and you're not a him uh, in any way, shape or form. Luckily though, once you're, you know, once you're in the clinic, the receptionist will make you feel welcome. The nurses will work with you and they are trained in all bodies mm-hmm. and they spend special care on trans folks on the understanding that they want them to have a positive experience. We've expanded our notion to whoever's in the community with gay men is part of our community. And have there been conversations, there probably have been around changing the name, and um, I imagine that's a tricky thing to do when you've become quite well known, right? Yeah. Is that, is that the reason why it stayed the way it has? Yep, it has. And uh, so it's two things. One is that, sure, we 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 are known, we have a recognizable brand, we're a going concern, so we're, we're, we're a busy organization. Like, none of our, our programs are always full. And we still recognize that we need to change. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We want to be on in, in, in relation in a good way with our communities. And so what we decided to do was that we decided that... Uh, so I work with two co-directors. Um, they are young, uh, BIPOC and Two-Spirit Indigenous people who advise me and uh, lead the programs and the health services. And we've worked together to essentially re-recruit our board. So what we've done is that we've created a board and we've recruited a board who can help us make this decision, who can make help us make this change. And we've recruited a board that's interested in change in some way. So we'll be undertaking a process over the next couple of years to see what we can keep and see what we need to change and, and make those changes as, as, as are necessary. But I will say this, one of the main recommendations from the TransFocus Consulting report was change your organization's name. Right. Because it's easier to do that in some ways than it is to just put a long, giant long sentence at the bottom of everything that you write about who you're for. <laughs> right. You know, and, and so, but as a, as a leader and as a gay man with privilege, I have no choice but to hope that we can go towards a renaming, a, a, a transformation that keeps what we've created and allows us to grow. Mm-hmm. We are, uh, we're like, you've ever seen a garden plot that's just like popping out and just there's flowers? That's our situation. We're so, we've got such abundance in the fact that people want to work with us. I feel it's time that over the next number of years, it's about figuring out other plots and expanding that garden out to make more space for everyone. Right. So that everyone has room to grow. So my hope, and this is my hope as the executive director, not having consulted with my community yet, um, my hope would be that the community is receptive to hearing change and to understanding that a name change doesn't mean that the philosophy of the thing changes. It doesn't mean that the spirit of the thing changes. It's a name to broaden and open the doors. We have lots of people in our generation right now who are not identifying as he, him, his. We have people who are identifying with they them or he them or she them or she they like we've got we've got lots of people who keep coming to us but they've changed and so we kind of need to change too that's my thinking but 
there will be a process like any nonprofit organization we have a we have a process to undertake we have for example relationships with public health agency of canada that understand us to be a certain way and we have to work with our partners with that change process so it's not just a matter of rebrand it's it's making sure that we maintain relationships that we think are valid and and valuable along the change process right well and speaking of change you talked about conversion therapy as um, something that you helped to address. Yes. So there was recently a ban on conversion therapy at the federal level. There was, yeah. So has that impacted what you're doing? Have you noticed a reduction in people who are being forced through conversion therapy? Has it just moved underground more and, and it's still happening to the same degree? I think that the law change flagged to the people that might be survivors or, or might hopefully make it through uh, conversion efforts and come back to us. Um, has flagged the the criminalization of it has flagged that it's not okay. Right. So my hope is that downstream we will see queer people standing up for themselves and saying this is illegal, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. But of course it's still happening. Right. Um, it has gone underground, and the ways and and my our program director Evan Matchett Wong would always talk about conversion efforts being extremely insidious, in that they're not always just a a church program called this is the gay conversion camp like if only it was that simple right sometimes conversion therapy is your pastor talks to you and tells you to come back each week and you have a power relationship with that person and they keep pulling you in and you don't know what to do otherwise because that's all you know mm-hmm. sometimes it's um we've heard of of uh, people in the south asian community talking about how some of the conversion efforts are more cultural than they are religious um, we've heard uh, about uh, indigenous from uh, some of our indigenous community members that um, when their elders have been influenced by Christianity or other religions, they take that and they enact it on the younger generation because they don't know better. And it's the the it's the cycle of trauma is that one of the things that the residential schools did was that it enforced a Christian worldview onto indigenous elders that they may not have actually had any cultural affinity with. Right. Conversion then looks really confusing to understand. And it's not at all therapeutic. I think that's the main thing right. to right. say, right? We call it conversion efforts because um, it's there's nothing therapeutic about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's lethal. Right. It's absolutely lethal. We have had countless people come through our counseling programs uh, who have told us that they've dealt with conversion therapy, that they either put themselves through it because it was all they knew, or they were put through it in some in some strange, bizarre way. Like, I've heard some stories. I feel that now that we have the program open, our program is called Survivors. It's a peer-led group where people who have survived conversion efforts come together and have conversations over an eight-week group, and then peers who do the group can cycle back through the group as leaders and lead their own group. So it's a little bit like, um, you know, we plant a seed and let the plant grow and then that plant pollinates and spreads another one because we're really hoping that on a community level, the way that we can combat it in, in the community is through knowledge. If 10 people can take our survivors program and those 10 people tell 10 people, that's good enough for me because that makes a change. Mm-hmm. This year, the West End Slow Pitch Association funded the programs. Uh, I will say we have difficulty funding these programs because actually... There is a lot of science that's been done recently around like proving how bad conversion efforts are. But in terms of the actual like evidence base for how exactly it causes a problem, um, and like I can't 
always show all the stats that a funder might want to say, well, you're right, that's definitely an issue. Let's give you some money to, to deal with that. It's in, it's a community problem that we've been yelling and policymakers have been yelling, yelling about and organizations like Community-Based Research Center have been like banging on the policy door for years and has made this law change happen. But we still recognize that it's just so insidious. It finds itself all over the place. And so we just need to keep our programs running so that the doors stay running. And at least in BC, we can like catch a few people who can catch a few people who can catch a few people. That's always been our way. Networks amongst queer people are our most powerful resource. So many of our people hear about these programs through word of mouth. It's wild. Like some people find us online for sure. That's like probably the largest group because like most of us are socially anxious and like to look things up on the internet first. Yeah. But it's word of mouth because once people do a thing and they learn a thing, they want to talk about the thing to their friends. Right. So that's why I'm so happy that we have community members that are willing to take our scary programs and then like broadcast it back out. Mm -hmm. And I want to get a little bit political here for a second, yeah. because when it comes to that conversion therapy ban federally, there was also a push to have a ban provincially. So uh, the current government in BC was presented with legislation twice to ban conversion therapy. They rejected that both times. And in a meeting with one of the MLAs, or sorry, MPs for the Liberal Party, they said they actually, despite implementing the federal ban, they still encourage the provinces to implement their own bans. And the logic is, if another government comes in and they want to remove that ban, it's a second layer of protection. Yes. Is that something that you still want to see from the Absolutely. Government? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, when uh, it was put forward to MPs, it was, as you know, it was like declined twice. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it and we, the second time, worked with a, a company that was really agitated about it. And we sent out letters to all the MPs. And the response that we got back was, well, it's fine. That It was very like a brush off. Mm -hmm. It was a brush off. And these were the same people that had kind of interrupted it in Parliament. Right. And so um, we feel that bans at all levels, because you know there's a municipal ban. Like right. Vancouver, Vancouver, Vancouver did yeah. that. And like Kelowna, I believe as well. I'm not, I, you know, but it's not overly prevalent. We need as many layers of protection as we can for this because you're absolutely right. With the movements that are happening with parents finding ways to pass laws that give them unique rights over their children that like somehow contravene the UN rights of children. Mm -hmm. I am, of course, scared that the same types of people will fight against and create some kind of religious or parental exception on a federal level. So it terrifies me. Right. And why it terrifies me is because if that were to happen and there is no ban on a provincial level, it will galvanize the people who most want to be able to um, run these types of programs and it will move them to the forefront. It will give them a badge of honor. I would worry that people would you know, if the ban was lifted, that as a as a contravention, as a reaction to the ban being lifted, they would amplify those programs even louder. Mm -hmm. And they would bring them out of any shadows they were in and put them on the forefront, thereby gaining more traction amongst their people like them and just cause more problems. So it's actually a big, big concern. Right. So the more layers of protection we have, the better. And I was, yeah, of course, disappointed with the province for not coming through with that at the time mm -hmm. and then kind of falling back on the, fed the feds for what they did. 
Right. Yeah, it was definitely disappointing. They they were saying, well, you know, this is the federal government. It's going to have more teeth going through them. But yeah. it meant two years in the lead up that we could have had protections and we didn't. And then we don't have that second line of defense yeah. now. Switching gears a little bit, uh, did COVID have a big impact on the way that your organization operates? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, try dealing with really there's actually been kind of three you know, not. I'll talk about MPOX in a moment if you, if you're okay with talking about that because it was another outbreak. It wasn't an epidemic, mm-hmm. but it, it certainly was an outbreak. Yeah. So dealing with what we think of as three outbreaks or epidemics at any one time was a bit of a was a bit of a journey. Absolutely, COVID affected us. However, because we work in sexual health care and because all the nurses are disease experts, we actually were so fortunate we barely missed a beat. Huh. The nurses and doctors who. Uh, know our clients we got together we talked we had conversations and we knew that there might be a little bit of reduction in gay men hooking up and having sex but there would not be a stop right but what we couldn't have happen was uh removing sti services and have that potential uh shame and underground sex scene turning into also like well i'm not going to get tested because i wasn't supposed to be having sex and i don't want my wrist to get slapped right so So making sure people feel supported when they come in instead of berated berated so we just kept the clinic open Mm -hmm. the nurses were incredible we followed all protocols we had quarantine rooms or or isolation rooms and and everything the nurses had to wear like they were strapped head to toe with gear but we managed to stay open the entire time and um it was so helpful we were one of the few clinics that actually did that we were we stayed open long we were actually open before a lot of the primary care clinics even reopened uh, just because we knew our population and we knew that our work was finite. It's not full primary care, right? It's not gender care. It's 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 sexual health care. It's testing, vaccination, treatment. So we decided we'd just keep up with it. And the people kept coming. And those other clinics must have had quite a backlog. If you close and you have to cancel appointments and then you reopen, I would imagine you have a rush of people Absolutely. that are coming in. Were, was there also a rush of people when those clinics were closing down that were moving over to your organization for help? Yeah, actually, I'm sure you know about the the Butte Street Clinic, mm-hmm. which was the clinic that was running out of the community uh, space on Butte Street. Actually, they closed during the pandemic and didn't reopen. Okay. So the other West End of Vancouver testing site didn't reopen. Right. And we feel that we've absorbed a lot of consumers from that from that clinic. So there were there were clinics that not only shut down and didn't reopen, but there absolutely was an influx from a number of different sources, whether that was from people learning about vaccinations during the COVID epidemic and then wanting to get new vaccinations. That was a group of people that started coming. But then, of course, the influx from the Butte Street Clinic closing was a major factor, too. Mm-hmm. And I know that you joined as the executive director in 2021. So um, that was a little bit after the start of the pandemic. And in an interview with Georgia Strait, you said at the time that you wanted to reach new levels of equity and leadership in decision making. So can you elaborate on how that work is going yeah absolutely yeah i am um, i'm a white guy uh i'm a white cis queer man uh who grew up in squamish i have some privilege and and power and so i feel that it's it's my responsibility to work to deconstruct that power so the first thing that we did at, at him was we created a shared leadership model so i have recused myself from decision making power in all aspects the conventional model of an executive director is that they have veto power they're like the CEO, they can kind of veto and, and cancel everything. And they kind of just really can come in and direct anything. We decided to diffuse that. So I work with two uh, directors, Evan Matchett-Wong and Darren Ho. 
and they each direct respectively the programs and the clinical services and they make the decisions there and I support them. So the first thing that we did was diffuse the idea that there needs to be one singular leader, especially because I'm a cis guy, a cis white guy. Um, the, neither of them are cis white guys. They're, one of them is cis, but um, they're, neither of them are white. So we get to share that perspective. The other thing we did was immediately work on um, reconstituting our board. So we've created a process, and you're actually the first person that I've told about this publicly. I, yeah, really um, curious. Yeah, so what we did was we worked on a process with our current board, which had gotten quite small during the pandemic because a number of people had to leave. It was, you know, complicated. Mm -hmm. So we had gotten down to about six board members, and we decided that the board should be as accessible as our director model at him. So what we did is we created three different working groups that constitute the board. So it's almost like the board is made up into three parts the first is of course governance they're doing stuff like finance you know strategy all that stuff then we've got a health advisory group that has conversations about hiv prevention and all of the people in that group are doctors nurses and people who have that experience so they support our clinical services and clinical uh, delivery and health promotion and, and they're all board members they're all board members okay. all of them are board directors mm -hmm. so they all have have equal say mm -hmm. uh, and then there's another group that similarly advises the programs and in that group we have sex workers we have bar staff we have drag performers who are just like here's what's happening on the street and this is what we think should happen mm -hmm. so each director at him works with a component of the board and the idea is i'm not sure if you've ever been on a board but sometimes what it looks like is sitting around and i always say this like kind of crude metaphor where it's like it's like a bunch of flies hovering around the same turd and that turd is often finance or policy and then what happens is, is when, say, like an energetic indigenous person or a young black person joins the board, they want to have something to say. They want to contribute, but they can't because everyone's hovering over finance and policy. Mm -hmm. So then they get bored, they get jaded. There's process, there's voting, there's annoying uh, colonial structures that get in the way. And we realize, like, we want to hear from these community members. We want to hear from indigenous community members. We want to create a board that literally gives them the permission to say, hey, you might not know a lot about finance, but you sure know a lot about community. Come on in. You have just as much value as the people who are accountants and lawyers. So I work with the accountants and lawyers and fundraisers. And Evan works with the sex workers and bar staff and, and people working in corporate. Uh, and Darren works with the nurses and doctors. And it's it's turning into a shape that we feel we'll be able to recruit board members into in a good way. Like we'll be able to say, hey, like you've never been on a board before. Then this is the board for you because you can you can weigh in. You can have you can tell us how we should report our impact. You can tell us where you think we need to be because there's mechanisms for that boards for too long have gone under the assumption that, and as a person I've worked in nonprofits since I was 18 years old. Wow. And I'm 38 now. So I've seen it all. I've seen lots of different boards. I've seen the ways that boards prioritize white people, people who look like me, to be able to sit there and like feel good about being on the board and that's about it. Mm -hmm. Our board is uh, engaged and we really want our board to be the community side of us and be like those ambassadors. So in a lot of ways, that's kind of how I, I decided to take leadership was like, and it's like, how do we do better leadership? We give it away. Mm -hmm. We share leadership. That's in my mind, how, how you do that. Is it perfect? No. Are we still in development? Absolutely. But that was kind of the long answer to your question about how I committed. Uh, and, and in 2021, we're going to made that commitment. Now it's taking shape mm -hmm. and we're going to be doing some press about it after the AGM in February. 
Um, it's very exciting. I've got this great engaged group of board members who text me, they call me up. They're like, hey, what about this fundraiser idea? Or like, what if we sold like uh, jocks? And what if we worked with um, Haozuk who has a uh, gender affirming jocks and uh, like jocks for all bodies and stuff like, like yeah, let's do that. Huh. So it's fun to get people who actually have a, there's a box to put their ideas into. Mm-hmm. So I love it. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating concept. Uh, when you said, you know, I don't know if you sit on any boards, I sort of laugh because I'm currently on five and down <laughs> yeah. from seven. So yes. um, I, I sit on a lot of boards, but we've never had a model like that. All of the boards are attempting to be as diverse as possible and struggling to get there. A lot of times it's sort of the same group of people that are sitting on a lot of different boards. They tend to be part of the same sort of communities and there's, I mean, there's always a challenge in finding a diversity of skills. There's also a challenge in finding a diversity of experiences. Yep. And it's important to bring all of that together so you have all of those different perspectives coming together to make the best decisions possible. But not every board looks like that. Yep. And I'm curious to know, how did you achieve that? Because, like I said, it's been a struggle for a lot of these boards. And, and um, this model sounds like something maybe I could propose to some of these boards. But, like, what are the steps that you take to find people that are willing to step into those positions it was a challenge to recruit absolutely because we were it was not the conventional board recruitment Mm -hmm. our notion was that we felt let's renovate the house prior to inviting the people in that was our thinking so we worked with the six board members and we developed the model and then recruited into the model so in our interviews we were saying where do you want to be involved which component would you love to be part of because we want to hear your voice and people would be like, yeah, I don't know much about finance, but I sure know a lot about going out to the bar. And then they're on our board and they're brilliant. They've got the best ideas ever and we finally get to hear them. Mm-hmm. What we did was we we renovated the house first. We put out some information and we, we put videos up that were like describing what we're recruiting for. We put out job descriptions so that it's very clear. Um, we actually find with, for volunteers, it's vital that you give them job descriptions mm-hmm. so that they understand like, what's my job? What's my scope? What's my role? What is expected of me? Because the other thing we deduced was that the notion of boards is a lot of assumption. It's a lot of like, I assume that being on a board means X, Y, Z. And it's like, mm, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. We, we threw away those expectations. We threw away the manual and we said, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's tired anyways. Let's do our own thing. So we we rewired the way we make decisions. We do that with consensus-based decision-making model now. So we don't vote on stuff unless it's absolutely necessary. So is that, that's not Robert's rules then? That would be like green rules? There are some, there in, there are some influence from the green rules, but it's actually just our, our own uh, co-created structure. Interesting. It does take a lot of work. It of course takes a lot of work to renovate something that has a fixed known blueprint. Like you gotta work really hard, but luckily, again, my staff is so energetic, so creative. Our board try, our, our board chair has been wildly successful, or wildly supportive. I mean, he's he's successful too, but um, he's been wildly supportive and has been as like a BIPOC doctor from immigrant parents. Like he is, he's been through what we're trying to work against. Mm-hmm. So he was able to, to help us, to shepherd us through uh, this. And he was very strong. And he was like, no, we need to do this. This is okay. Let's not be too afraid. Let's, let's, let's go boldly forward. And let's realize that all this stuff about boards is just made up. Right. There are essential components that boards must execute. And we will absolutely 100% be in compliance 
to the CRA and to the BC government. But it doesn't need to look like Robert's Rules. Right. It doesn't need to look like a bunch of white cis men sitting around a table. It doesn't need to look like a bunch of tired trans men who are on 18 boards sitting at the table. It doesn't have to look like that. Mm-hmm. It can look different. And so that was our idea. And so we hope people do take it. I mean, we'll talk to some people and we'll do some press. And like, I just hope people just realize that you can just take your organization's structure, just mirror it on your board. That's what we did. We said, well, we've got an, an executive director kind of doing administration and outward facing stuff. And we've got a programs person and we've got a clinical services guy. Let's mirror that on the board. Let's make sure that each of these directors has a direct link, a support group, uh, and that the board themselves has a support group as well. Right. So that's what we were thinking. Uh, I wish that I could say I took it from somewhere. We just kind of made it up as we went along and co-created it together with the current board. Amazing. And looking towards the future, what what are you hoping for the future of Health Initiative for Men? Well, like I said earlier, I'm hoping for a process of change. I'm hoping for a process of evolution. And I'm hoping that our communities are ready to inherit change. I say inherit because change is natural. Change is the most natural thing in the world. The water changes every second of this day. Change is natural. I hope that our communities are willing to say, you know what? I liked him. I like that name. I think that's cute. I think that's great. I I recognize, though, that we can't keep leaving people behind. And I recognize that the queer health paradigm is changing and might need to just involve lots of different people and lots of different ideas and, and, and philosophies and concepts. But yeah, that's where a big thing that I'd like to see us do. I'd love to see us get um, more partnerships, more funds to do work in specific areas. The conversion efforts is one area the ongoing uh, issues that we see with um, substance use. So we want people to have the resources that they need for support their substance use and make make choices in the way that they want to and have the harm reduction options that work really well for them. That's an area where I'd love to see growth. Our counseling program can always grow. Mental health is such a, a crisis. We have we want to be able to include more and more queer women because suicide rates amongst queer women are actually higher than amongst queer men. So that's a, that's a statistic relevant enough for me to make the change, and we did, but, and, we, we want to grow it more. So I want to see growth, and I want to see change. Right. And one of the questions I ask in all of these podcast episodes is what our audience can do to help. So mm. in this case, when it comes to the issues that you're dealing with or your organization specifically, what can our audience do to help out? Mm, Great question. At a base level, I think learning. Gay men's health, queer health, look it up, check it out. Read on our website, checkemout.ca or uh, morethansex.ca is a website we also created. Inform yourself regardless of who you are. If you're a suburban housewife, if you're a dentist living in, you know, Kelowna, take the five to 10 minutes to watch a YouTube video about prep. Take 10 or 15 minutes to say to your family how you, you know, wish it were better for trans folks. Go there, read about us, read our stories, read our experiences. There's so much out there. Queer people like exist on the internet in a major way. And we have been telling our stories on the internet and in lots of different ways for years. So the main thing that I think people could do for all queer people, and of course would benefit the organization is, is learn. Learning fights stigma. Information combats stigma. When we know things, we're less afraid of them. Specifically to the organization, of course, there's, you know, if you're a friend of a gay man, tell them that there's a clinic. Tell them that there's programs for them. If you are um, a person with, uh, with, um, with, who's struggling with their mental health, like, come see us. Come talk to us. Um, engage with us. Don't be shy. 
We're partnered with community. So if it's not a good fit with us, it'll probably be a good fit with them. And then of course, for the, for the gay men and people like me, gay men, queer men, bi men, I would say the main thing that I want from my community is open their eyes. Look at the fact that our community is more diverse than they, than they think. Mm-hmm. Look at the fact that our community has always involved trans women, has always involved queer women. And that men still have a lot of power and privilege in a lot of contexts. I think that that's what I would want from our, our, our audience. Like, I want them to come to our services, but they already are. You know, I want them to engage in our groups, and they already are. What I would really love to see happen is our community blossom and transform into the space-age place that I know it can be. I've been to parties, uh, like Vancouver has a party Queers and Beers. And when I was there, I was like, this is some Star Trek stuff like there's like there are people in wheelchairs there's people checking on people to make sure they have sunscreen there's trans folks there's people expressing their gender however they want to it's racially diverse there's people with there's people with crutches there's people like helping other people get drinks who can't reach the the counter like it was the most magical thing and that's the truth the fiction is that it's all gay men i think there should be things for gay men don't get me wrong i think there should be parties for gay men i think that's that's wonderful but what I want from our community is to look around and realize that this community is big and this community is strong and we're so much stronger together. Absolutely. And is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you're really wanting to, to have a discussion about? I think I said I would talk about MPOX, but I don't need to. But <laughs> Oh, actually. I, yeah, I, yeah, I think that the that. thing that I would say is that there's some there, that uh, in like not this summer, but the summer before there was an outbreak of a, of a, vi- of a virus called um, monkeypox or what we recoined to say MPOX. Mm-hmm. We're just still encouraging people to get vaccinated, to get their two injections. Uh, and it was it was a, certainly an interesting thing to to face in the in those summers. And we got real creative. We had fun with it. We in Vancouver learned from our partners on the East Coast and in Central and in kind of Toronto and, and Ottawa and uh, Quebec and Montreal uh, about what was happening there. And we did actions to contravene it. So we did things like we got glow in the dark signs. We got uh, oh, the city of Vancouver to waive littering charges. And then we went into Stanley Park and put our glow up glow in the dark signs up so that they were they would light up when a flashlight hit them or they were charged from the sun. It'd be like, did you get your monkeypox vaccination or whatever? We'd have a van parked nearby that they could just scan a QR code and find the van. So that was fun. And that was just something I wanted to talk about because I think that my team did some really innovative work in conjunction with the health authorities and, and we we made a difference. There was a significant reduction in rates of eight, of, of, of MPOX in Vancouver. Right. And is this still uh, a high concern for people? It's not as high of a concern as it was in the initial period of time. But of course, it is still something that now we need to think about being vaccinated for, mm-hmm. um, much like... HPV, much like um, other things that we can find for COVID, uh, the flu shot, like there's lots of other vaccinations that we need to think about it, and this is one of them. Right. Well, wonderful. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? No, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Yay. This has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Burling. Today, I've been joined by Aaron Purdy from Health Initiative for Men, or him, and we'll catch you in the next one. Thanks, everyone. So, thank you. Yay. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.